All right, welcome back, lovely people. Uh, this is Mr. Wilkes broadcasting to you live from my office, my sister's office. She's letting me lend it. Uh, very nice, very professional. Good acoustics in here. So hopefully the sound quality is nice. Um, unfortunately, I was not able to bring my air horn hype button. You know. But I think we can live without it for one episode. Um, so today we are mainly talking about the battles and events of World War II in the Pacific Theater, a.k.a. all the things that happen in the islands of the Pacific, battles mostly with Japan, uh, battles on the islands uh, in Japanese-controlled territories between the Allies and Japan, mostly the United States, but also... Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, United Kingdom, all that stuff. So, uh, without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so we're going to get started back where we were a couple of episodes ago with the Sino-Japanese War. Um, a lot of people would consider this the first of the Pacific Theater War Battles, um, there's several major conflicts in China between Japan and China. Uh, the Battle of Shanghai, the Battle of Nanking, um, the Battle of Beijing, I want to say. Um, there's also some things going on in the islands with the Philippines, with Hong Kong, Taiwan, all that stuff. Um, but the event that everybody knows as the official start of World War II in the Pacific, at least as we know it as America, is of course December 7th, 1941, about 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. in the morning. Um, J Japan plans and executes a sneak attack on the United States at... Pearl Harbor, so uh, the Pearl Harbor attack is really the official starting point from the American perspective of the Pacific War. Uh, again, December 7th, 1941. Um, Pearl Harbor is a naval base. It is off the coast of one of the islands of Hawaii. So Pearl Harbor is not in mainland America. It is... It wasn't even a state at the time. Hawaii was still just a territory, but a very important one, and one where we had the majority of our Pacific naval war machinery. Um, a lot of our ships, a lot of our planes, a lot of our weaponry, a lot of soldiers um, from our naval forces were there, stationed there, Mainly because we knew Japan was up to something, but we hadn't started fighting them yet. So it was kind of an outpost, kind of an observational base. Um, but there was no combat happening. Well, the morning of December 7th, the Japanese throw an all-out assault on the naval base there at Pearl Harbor. They mainly attack via aircraft, dropping bombs all over our Aircraft carriers, our battleships, our destroyers, um, and the bases themselves. They attack a lot of the, the grounded aircraft that are parked on the runways and stuff. 
um, submarines attack from underwater, uh, attacking ships with torpedoes and stuff like that. Um, and it is very fast, very chaotic, very brutal. Um, several thousand people die during the Pearl Harbor attack. It is one of the worst moments in American history. Um, let's see the exact data here, just to do it credit. Um, looks like right about 2,335 were killed, another 1,100 wounded. Um, 70 civilians killed and 35 wounded of the Americans. So, um, the Japanese did not get out of this completely scot-free. They did lose a handful of aircrafts. Uh, they did lose, you know, a little more than half, half hundred soldiers. Uh, they had one captured, they had a couple submarines destroyed, but I mean, the vast majority of the damage is happening to United States side. Uh, both human life being lost and uh, military vehicles and equipment being destroyed. So, why did Japan do this? Um, their motivations behind this are crucial because Japan is on the warpath. They have been a, a dominant, powerful empire for some time, but... They're also very, very clever and very strategic, and they realize that the United States, ever since World War I, has been one of the major industrial war powers, kind of like Great Britain, England, France, Germany, etc., uh, Russia. So Japan knows they can't one-on-one -on -one defeat us in a prolonged conventional war without pulling out some super sneaky moves, some, some unconventional strategy. And one of those strategies is if they attack at Pearl Harbor, they cripple our naval force in not only the Pacific, but a majority of the world for so long that we're not able to recover in time to win the war itself. Basically a battle so bad that they knock us out with one surprise punch. Uh, kind of like the Blitzkriegs that the Nazis did in Europe. Um, and this did throw us for a loop for many, many months after Pearl Harbor. We're not even in really fighting mode. We're in preparing to fight mode again. We're rebuilding the Navy. We're rearming ships. We're repairing ones that were badly damaged. We're recruiting new soldiers. Um, it's mainly getting back to where we were before Pearl Harbor was attacked. The whole first year of the war is mainly about just revamping to get where we were. Um, however, Japan underestimated this uh, country of ours in the 1940s. And attacking Pearl Harbor uh, launches us into a war that we weren't really wanting to get into. We didn't want to fight Japan. We didn't intend to fight Japan, but by this brutal, horrific attack out of nowhere, they forced us to get into it. Um, if you look on the internet, there are tons of memes about Hitler and how angry Hitler would have been when the J Japanese did this because 
America staying out of the war for the bad guys was the best possible outcome. Anything that drew us into the war was going to be a lot of trouble for the Nazis or the Japanese or both. Um, and the Japanese kind of just out of nowhere punched us in the face. So we're going to take a quick pause and then we're going to pick up on what happens after Pearl Harbor when America gets to strike back. So just one moment. Okay, welcome back. So where we picked up last time, Japan has just bombed Pearl Harbor, um, propelling the United States into a must-fight situation, and we enter World War II. And honestly, the first year, uh, about first year, yeah, it's not really pretty. Um, almost all of 1941 is Japan invading this, Japan attacking that, Japan forcing surrenders of Hong Kong, of the Philippines, uh, defeats of this and that. Um, it is not uh, a great year. Again, most of this year is the United States at home trying to rearm what it lost at Pearl Harbor. So we're not playing the winning team here for a while. Japan is, is whooping us pretty good. Um, now, that tide does begin to turn uh, in 1942. In the early spring of 42, um, we have our first sort of offensives. Uh, by the time we get to Summer of 42, we have our first major battlefield victories of World War II for the Americans. The Battle of Midway comes to mind. That would be the first one. Uh, Midway is a tiny little island between Hawaii and Japan that was used basically as a refueling stop and an airport by the United States. That was literally all it was big enough for. But it was the site of America's really strategic surprise attack on the Japanese. Um, I could do a whole episode on that one battle because it was a combination of surprise attack, good planning, and really good luck on our part. But we really dominated the Japanese there. We, we sunk several of their major ships and it was a definite outright defeat for Japan. Um, I should say in these naval battles, it's all a matter of, I mean, human life is always going to be the thing that you think of first, but in naval battles, it's more about your equipment damage. What are you sinking? What are you damaging? What are you stopping from moving when you're attacking? Obviously, in naval battles, the big, the big fish you're going after is aircraft carriers, those big, long ships because not only can they fire guns at you but they can attack you with hundreds of airplanes and take off and land airplanes so those are the things that are most valuable in these battles then you've got your battleships then you've got your cruisers your carriers all that stuff you guys have played the game battleship i'm sure um but in 1942 and 43 uh we start attacking the japanese not just on the water and in the air, but we start having our 
um, Marine Corps and our naval soldiers uh, attacking via land, via amphibious assault. Now, this is the point of the war that I would say is the most unique and different from Europe. Um, with no offense to soldiers who fought in Europe, um, my own grandfather, great-grandfather, fought in the European theater, like I said. Um, the fighting in Europe and the fighting in the islands of the Pacific were totally different worlds. First off, the settings and the scenery are totally different. In Europe, it is wet, it is cloudy, it is a lot of times cold, it is, um, you know, mountains and hillsides and rolling pastures and, and towns and cities. <coughs> In the Pacific, it is the opposite of that, other than the wetness. Uh, it is rainforests, it's jungles, it is blisteringly hot and sunny, it is super humid, it is flash flood rainstorms and monsoons, it is wild animals and dangerous insects everywhere, it is fighting up close and fighting an enemy that a lot of times you cannot see. Um, if you had to choose one or the other, I, I think that about probably nine out of every ten people would want to fight in Europe if you got to pick. Because the fighting in Europe is much more across open battlefields, you know, you're shooting at each other 50, 100 yards away, you know, you're certainly putting your life in danger, but you're not living a nightmare like you are in the Pacific. The Pacific... You're fighting people that a lot of times, like I said, you can't see. They're hidden in the trees. They're hidden in the jungle. It might be nighttime, pure blackness outside. You might be up to your knees in muddy water in the rainforest, you know, with bugs crawling all over you. And the other thing is fighting the Japanese themselves is very different than fighting the Europeans. The Japanese, by this point of the World War II timeline are fully invested in hardcore, extreme fascist and nationalist, um, radical mindset. They're, they're sort of brainwashed almost to fight to the last man, to take no prisoners, and to never surrender. So a lot of the times these Japanese soldiers are not fighting until they know they're beat and then they give up. They are literally fighting until they run out of people to fight. And anybody who is left at the very end, the last handful of people, end up committing suicide instead of being captured. Um, this is radically different than in Europe and in the North African battles of World War II where a lot of prisoners are being taken. Now, I say that with an asterisk because the battles between Germany and Russia in the Eastern Front in the German assault on Russia were absolutely hardcore like this and were also pretty barbaric. But the battles that happened in France and, you know, uh, Belgium and, and Germany and Austria and Poland, those battles are a lot more civilized. They're a lot more, you know, prisoners are taken. Nobody is 
tortured or mutilated. Nobody is barbarically butchered, you know, nightmare sort of scenarios. But in the Pacific, it happens all the time. Um, these Japanese would fight to the death and would be happy to do it a lot of the time. Um, on one hand, it's admirable that they were so courageous. On the other hand, it's terrifying to think that our forefathers, grandfathers, and, and relatives fought against a group that were so hardcore. Um, for instance, if you shot and fatally wounded a Japanese soldier, instead of falling to the ground and crying out for help or surrendering, they would pull a grenade out of their bag and pull the pen so that when you walked up to check on them, you would die too. Um, a very sneaky, very deadly type of thing. And if you were unfortunate enough to fall into the hands of the Japanese, you would wish you had died. Um, they treated their prisoners absolutely terribly. They tortured, they mutilated, they forced soldiers to kill their own comrades. There were reports of cannibalism. There were reports of um, bodies being cut up and mutilated in all sorts of creepy sort of positions. Um, it was a very, very scary thing because they used these tactics to terrorize the other side. Um, the one big drawback of that, and the sad part of it, is when one side starts doing barbaric, brutal acts like this, like the Japanese were doing, uh, I don't care who the other side is, you're going to get drawn in and be pulled down to their level. So, the Americans start doing equally bad things to the Japanese because they feel a need to get vengeance, to get payback for these terrible acts. So... It's really messy on both sides for a while there. Um, you have all sorts of stories. You know, I'm not going to dwell on it because I don't want to focus on the, the blood and gore and guts and everything the whole episode. But um, battles like the Philippines, battles like um, Peleliu, battles like Iwo Jima, uh, Okinawa, battles like the Solomon Islands... Um, Borneo, they're all extremely brutal and they take forever to win over because you're not just winning the battle, you're literally eliminating the entire Japanese force there. But in 1943-44, the United States starts winning the majority of these battles and the Japanese are starting to be on the ropes. They're starting to play the role of the losing side. They've lost their momentum and they're kind of on the run. Um, still fighting to the death, but they start losing more than they're winning. So the tide of the turn of the war has begun to turn. Um, when we return here in just a second, I'm going to talk about the final days of the war and what happens at the end of the war. Be right back. Okay, welcome back. So we're going to talk about the final days of the war here and what's happening towards the end of the war. Um, Japan is beginning to get desperate. They're running out of money. They're running out of resources. They're running out of ammunition and weaponry. They're losing island after island. And 
they're running out of soldiers. Honestly, Japan is a big populous nation, but they have been at war now for almost a decade if you include China. And this is not uh, something a country that size can sustain forever. So when you have soldiers fighting to the last guy on each island, every time an island is taken, you're losing several divisions worth of men, 20, 30, 50,000 men. Um, so in the last year or two of this war in the Pacific, um, in 1944, 45, and uh, 46, um, well, actually, no, not 46, 44 and 45, Japan is on the run and they're um, in big trouble. The problem is the emperor of Japan and the fascist dictator of Japan, Hirohito and Tojo, are very stubborn about surrendering and kind of hypnotized by their own beliefs and nationalism that they're not losing this war, they're just having a bad streak, that eventually they're going to rebound and win, um, defend at all costs, and by the time Okinawa is taken, which is one of the closest islands to actual Japan, the Japanese forces are beginning to plan basically to draw back and force um, a full-on invasion of Japan by the Allied forces. So we'd have to attack Japan in Japan, go city to city throughout the country of Japan and take it over, which would take years of battle and would cost millions of lives. But back to that in a minute. Um, as we start getting closer to... Japan, one of the things that we start doing to try to encourage their surrender, because at this point, it's kind of like the Nazis after they lost in Russia. It's not a matter of if Japan is going to be beaten in this war. It's a matter of how long is it going to take. Um, we start using these islands as Air Force bases and as takeoff points for bombing raids. And the United States starts bombing the crap out of Japan. Now, everybody knows about the big bombs that happen at the end. That's not what I'm talking about early on. What I'm talking about now is actually surprisingly worse. And you may say to yourself, how can it be worse than an atomic bomb? We killed way more people in Japan with non-atomic bombs than we did with atomic bombs. It's one of the major misconceptions of World War II. People think the atomic bombs that we dropped were the mass casualty atrocities of the war, which they were bad. But the real bad bombing happened from what's called incendiary bombs, from firebombing. And this happened throughout 1945 in major cities, most notably Tokyo, where we firebombed a huge chunk of the city, killing up to 100,000 people in one bombing raid. People are burned alive. It is so hot in the areas these bombs are dropped that people jump in the rivers to escape the fire and are boiled because the water starts boiling. Um, it is horrible, even more horrible than the atomic bombs, believe it or not. Um, but Japan is still stubbornly fighting this war. They are not close to surrendering. 
and we start running out of options. So, towards the end of 1945, the president finally agrees to use a weapon that we've been working on for many, many years, and that is the atomic bomb. Since the beginning of the war, America has been researching and testing and experimenting with using atomic elements in a weapon to create nuclear uh, fission to create an explosion. Basically making the same explosion that happens on the sun over and over again, splitting an atom. You know, I'm not a big science guy, but I, I think I kind of have a grasp on this. Um, this would create the most powerful explosive force ever in history. And by 1944-45, we finally have it figured out for the most part. It's just a, how are we going to use it and what are we going to do with it? So, President Truman, who has now recently taken over after uh, Franklin Roosevelt passes away and the vice president takes over, signs off to use these atomic weapons. Um... I say weapons because he authorized two different uses of them um, at two different cities in one signing. So we knew we were going to drop two unless they surrendered after the first one. Um, we planned to drop more until they surrendered. But uh, the big question of this is why. Why did we decide to nuke Japan? Well, basically... It was decided we were going to nuke Japan because the only other option by this point, we had taken all their other territories. They had lost most of their territory in China now. The only way to get Japan to surrender other than this was by invading them D-Day style into Japan, which would have cost rough estimates 1 to 2 million American lives and probably 5 to 10 million Japanese lives over a decade-long period. It would have been horrifically ugly to try to win the war that way. So, they thought the nuclear weapons were big and scary enough to freak the world out and freak Japan out enough to surrender. Um, and they were right, but not at first. So, Japan is first attacked with a nuclear weapon at the city of Hiroshima, which is a military industrial city. It's hotly debated whether or not this is considered a military target or a civilian target. Um, there were plenty of civilians, but it was a major war manufacturing city. A lot of weapons and vehicles were produced there. Um, to America's credit, we did drop flyers out of bombers several days and weeks before the bombing, warning the civilians to get out because something really bad was about to happen. So a lot of civilians were evacuated, which was a good thing. But um, we eventually, on August 6, 1945, at about 7.38 a.m., fly over the city of Hiroshima, uh, the Air Force pilot Paul Tibbetts is in command of a B-29 bomber called the Enola Gay. Uh, I only know that because that guy happened to be a member of my fraternity. He was uh, very famous for this. Um, 
and he dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And the bomb falls out of the plane. A lot of people think it lands on the ground and blows up. That's not what happens. It actually is timed and set to detonate about a thousand feet over the city. So it never hits the ground before it explodes. The, the explosion detonates a thousand feet before it hits the ground. But the explosion hits almost exactly on target over the city. And within less than a second of the explosion, um, 30 to 50,000 people are killed. The vast majority of them are vaporized. There's literally nothing left of them, not even bones. Uh, they are turned to dust. I mean, this is uh, an instant, you know, cartoon-style, like, ray gun, poof, dead. Like, nothing left. Um, within the first couple of minutes, once the explosion happens, the mushroom cloud forms, and the explosive blast hits... Another twenty to 30,000 are killed, and another twenty or 30,000 are wounded very badly or burned. The city is caught on fire with radioactive fires. Um, almost all buildings within a two-mile radius are completely flattened. Um, windows for about a 10-mile area are shattered from the blast. Um, Anybody who looked at the blast when it happened was blinded. People su suffer severe burns and radiation. Um, it was really, really scary and ugly and horrific. One of the darker chapters of American history. A lot of people still today uh, debate whether we should have ever done this because it was so terrible. Um, again, by the numbers, not as terrible as the firebombings, but in one swoop. The scary thing is this all happens in like a five minute period. Um, another probably 50,000 people die within the next few years from radiation, from wounds sus sustained, uh, from being pushed out of their homes and, and destroyed. Uh, altogether, the collective estimate is about 150,000 dead from the first bomb. And believe it or not, Japan does not surrender. They keep at it, and they show no signs of giving up. So, a couple of weeks later, we drop a second bomb, a slightly modified version, but an equally powerful, if not more powerful version, on Nagasaki, Japan, another industrial city to the north of Japan. Um, another forty to 60,000 people are killed there. After these two bombings, <coughs> the United States finally gets what they want, and Japan agrees to surrender and negotiate a end to the war. Um, the United States agrees to occupy Japan. Japan has to give up their military forever. Japan, to this day, is still not allowed to have a standing military um, and the war is won on both sides. Now World War II is officially over. Um, and by 1946, the world is on the path to rebuilding. So that is um, the happy ending to this story after all this terrible stuff. So I'm going to take a quick pause and then we're going to wrap all this up in one last segment. Be right back. Okay, so... 
We have finished our Pacific and European theaters of the war. World War II has officially wrapped up. Um, and I just wanted to take a minute to kind of look back and discuss uh, momentarily the fallout from this and how it was different from the Great War, World War I. Um, why don't we call World War II the Great War, etc.? Um, World War II was, without question on paper, a worse war than World War I. Many, many more lives were lost on all sides. But the biggest difference was in the Second World War, you had a lot more destruction, death, and damage done to civilians, to innocent people, to persecuted populations, most notably the Jewish people, but also the Chinese, also handicapped people, uh, homosexuals, uh, gypsy populations in Europe, the Nazis, anybody who wasn't, you know, like them, um, Catholics as well, um, the fighting was on a bigger scale, the bombing and the technology was much higher use and precise, so the death numbers and the death tolls were a lot worse. Um, the other big thing about World War II is that behind the scenes of this war, we have these bad, bad war crimes happening, the Holocaust in Europe and the, Chi the Japanese war crimes in China and the Philippines and etc., um, in the Pacific that make the story a lot more dramatic, make it a lot sadder, darker, whatever you want to say. So this is why World War II is so much more famous is because, one, America had a much bigger role in it um, than we did in World War I. We were a major player in World War II. Uh, also... World War II had these cartoonishly bad, evil villain type guys. There was a much clearer good and bad side of this war than World War I, where both sides were kind of fighting over just territory. Um, in the end, uh, it was kind of a necessary event. You don't want to look at this as, was this a good chapter in history, a bad chapter? I mean, no war is a good chapter but, you know, was it necessary? Was it avoidable? I don't think it was. I do think it's one of those events in history you have to look at from a lens of, well, this happened and we know it happened and we knew it, it was good. We knew it had to happen. We're just glad that it's over and that it won't happen again. Um, I say that on two reasons. One, I like to think we have learned enough from our lessons of the first two world wars to where we won't ever get into a third one. I could be wrong, but I hope I'm not. Two, if there is another world war that ever happens, it will probably involve nuclear weapons, which would make both world wars put together seem small if they ended up becoming a nuclear third war. So... Because of those two reasons, I don't think we're ever going to see another conflict like this. I pray that that is the case, but who knows? History has shown us scarier things in the past, so we will see. But um, the biggest fallout for the United States is that we are now seen by a lot of the world as 
the watchdog sort of monitor of safety, of security, of following the rules in the world, the other superpower that is formed out of this that is seen by a lot of the world as the protectors, as the defenders, is the USSR. And those two sides clash together in the Cold War for the next 40 years. The Cold War isn't really a war, it's more of a standoff. But the United States and the Communist Soviets uh, are at odds from the 1940s until the early 90s, right after I'm born. So, um, but this is probably our last major topic in this history class this year, just because I thought it would be interesting enough for you guys to talk about remotely, um, and I just thought I wouldn't be doing you guys any favors by leaving it off of this year's curriculum. Um, but... If you have any questions, feel free to email me. Make sure you do the last Google form on this one. Um, when we pick up next week, we're going to focus mainly on review and perfecting you know, your writing style and your knowledge level for the AP test. So everything from here on should be stuff we've already talked about. But I have very much enjoyed going over this stuff with you guys through these podcasts. I hope you have gotten something out of them. Um, <laughs> And stay safe, stay secure. I will talk to you guys again soon. Mr. Wilkes signing off.